Hey folks, there's lots going on on our upcoming podcast, so please listen on Podbean, Spotify, Apple, or at patreon.com slash solidarityhouse. We are here live uh, with um, Rihanna Rose Lee, uh, and you're in the Twin Cities? Yes, I'm in Minneapolis. All right, great. Um, and you are a longtime uh, veteran uh, activist on a number of different levels. Um, I uh, see you uh, popping up in you know a, a variety of, of different causes, but what we want to talk about is uh, the, ex- the proposed Line 3 expansion, which is a pipeline expansion, um, of course. Now, I... I lived for a while in the La Crosse area, and we uh, had a lot of of campaigns against um, railroad lines that were uh, hauling oil uh, down through, uh, you know, down the Mississippi shore, down through La Crosse. Um, Obviously, the pipeline campaigns were always a big part of politics in that area, in that sort of of, um, uh, part of the the country. Uh, And this is part of that, too. Uh, but it's not something necessarily that the rest of, of the country really knows about. Why don't you tell us a little bit um, about uh, Line 3? It's been around for a long time, but this is an expansion. Why don't you, uh, why don't you give us the skinny? Give me the skinny. All right, so in 2014, uh, Line 3, or Enbridge, which is a Canadian pipeline company, decided to propose an expansion to the pipeline. So that's what Line 3 is. Um, So line three is going to be bringing about a million barrels of tar sands from Alberta, Canada to Superior, Wisconsin, and it's going right through the Mississippi River. Um, So with this new expansion, I think what's important is that we actually talk about what tar sands are, because tar sands aren't normal oil. Um, It's actually, it's much dirtier, and it's actually more expensive. So let's just talk about tar sands for a minute, and then we'll get back to the actual line three. Sure, absolutely. Uh, Um, So tar sands are kind of also known as like an oil sand. So it's actually a mixture of clay, sand, water, and this thing called bitumen, which I didn't even know what that was until I started getting into what um, line three activism. So bitumen is made up of these hydrocarbons, and it's the same exact molecules that are in liquid oil. And in order to extract the bitumen to make it regular oil, it's actually using six gallons of fresh water for every one gallon of oil, which just to kind of put this into context, that's actually three times as much water that we're using for these tar sands that we would be using for conventional oil. So three times worse. Furthermore, on a lifetime basis, uh, so the uh, one gallon of gasoline made from these tar sands is actually fi- giving off 15% more carbon dioxide emissions than from conventional oil. So we already know how bad conventional oil is. Tar sands are like to the next level, so much worse, so much dirtier. Um, it's actually more costly too because of this extraction process. Right. It's, so uh, this isn't like, oh, well, we found a cheaper way to make oil. So that's why we're going right. this way. And nobody's going to get jobs from it. And <laughs> Uh, let, let's preempt all of, I mean, we don't have to, but we, there's, there's a bunch of other reasons that we learned cat. from, that's all right. Many, many cats come on the show. It's great. Uh, but we already know. I'll like, say hi real quick oh, since she'll run away. Hi, honey. Hello. That's, that's going to get a couple of independent likes right there. Um, so we already know the lessons of a lot of the, the this tar sands bullshit from 
other struggles that we have fought. Uh, and we know that there's not going to be jobs and we know that it's not going to result in cheap oil uh, for, uh, you know, in, uh, for the for the masses. And we know that that it's worse uh, in, in terms. Well, not everyone knows, but we know that it's it's worse in terms of being dirtier and all of this. And I guess what I'm saying is it feels like we have fought these battles before. And as soon as uh, right after he was inaugurated, the, the president uh, shut down uh, the, or revoked the Keystone. Yep, Keystone XL. And everyone thought this this is guy is this he guy's the it. edge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so what's up with that? What's up with that, right? Uh, so Keystone XL, I was ecstatic seeing that Biden was putting a stop to it. Um, so I actually had gone up to Standing Rock at one point with a car filled with supplies, uh, went through a blizzard. It was quite an experience. Um, I didn't really want to stay. I knew a lot of, by that point, a lot of white people were kind of going up there, treating it like a new Woodstock. And that's just beyond inappropriate. So as a quick sidebar, I just want to say, if you are a white person and you are not native and you are helping, um, absolutely your help is appreciated. They want the help. We need allies. But you need to remember um, to listen to the leaders of those communities because it's really their community that's being most affected. So before I get it too much into Keystone, um, I do want to just quickly sure. say like, um, ah, sorry. want to talk about the organizations that- I <laughs> Yeah, mean, there's so much to talk the about. Before the horse, <laughs> but if you do want to talk about at some point, you know, which are, which, uh, you know, what are the news sources that we should be listening to and what are the organizations and groups? And, you know, I've got this Inside Climate News um, article in front of me by Christopher Teague that talks about some of those groups and, and some of those voices and really, uh, you know, it is an in, in many ways an indigenous-centered uh, movement, as Keystone was, um, and you know, which also makes it frustrating too, because again, it's almost as if the administration's actions with Keystone was just through a smokescreen over uh, everything else that was going on. That's kind of what it feels like, um, because Keystone got so much national attention because of the protests up there, and really, honestly, the violence. Um, the police were treating the water protectors in an absolutely disgusting way. They were shooting water cannons at them. I mean, of course, this only happens to activists. It never happens to, you know, insurrectionists going into the Capitol. But, but I'm going to leave that aside real quick because that's a much bigger conversation. Um, but real quick, um, so this new pipeline, or I shouldn't say new, but line three, this project is actually crossing through 1855 treaty territory for the Anishinaabe people. Um, this is their land. Um, I mean, all of it is, all of America is really their land, but I mean, this is a treaty. So right, right. what Minnesota is doing and really Canada and this entire, and Enbridge overall, what we're doing is actually breaking a treaty. Um, and I think that that's important to say because it's, that's at the crux of this huge problem. So aside from the environmental impact, which is obviously a problem and impacting literally everyone on this planet, uh, we are also breaking a treaty with our indigenous neighbors. And that's, that's something that we need to have a conversation about because that's not acceptable. Um, that's something Americans, we kind of keep doing this as far as oil extraction. We keep kind of going back on our word, taking these little by little, taking the land back that we've allowed the native communities to keep. And now we're like taking it back. Um, so this pipeline is actually crossing through a lot of wild uh, rice watersheds and the headwaters of the Mississippi. So this is impacting a lot of people, but mostly it's the Anishinaabe people who are most impacted right now. Um, 
we were talking about uh so let's go back to keystone real quick sure uh so with keystone when biden decided to revoke those permits and stop this we were so happy we're like okay he's listening he's listening to the environmental activists which honestly was a little bit of a worry with uh president biden um i mean there was that kind of notorious moment during the primaries when an environmental activist spoke to him and then he said well you should just vote for someone else yeah. it's like well come on man Come on, man. Um, and I mean, we did. We voted for Bernie, but it didn't matter. So we have Biden Word, now. Yeah. <laughs> we have Biden now. And I really did think, OK, now it seems like Biden's listening to us. Um, I'm not under any delusion he's going to actually support the Green New Deal, but he is supporting parts of it without calling it that. So maybe that actually is helpful. I know to a lot of conservatives, the Green New Deal sounds like some scary socialist agenda. Uh, socialism isn't a bad word. <laughs> Not a bad Stop word. Stop promising us a good time, <laughs> Right? Right? If only I could vote for the version of Biden that Republicans created. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but as we see from, uh, you know, the, the impending approval of this project, uh, um, that's not all that it's cracked up to be. It's not. So when Biden revoked the uh, Keystone XL, which was great, um, my immediate reaction was, awesome. Uh, what about line three? And so, and I know that that's kind of a negative way to look at it because we should just be able to celebrate a win, but line three is just getting really started. So if we revoke it now, then it's not going to have the environmental impact that it could if we revoked it in two years. Um, so what we want is for President Biden to revoke line three's permits immediately. Um, the reason he should do this is because President Trump um, rushed these permits through without doing an environmental impact statement. So the environmental studies have not been completed yet. Um, and what makes that actually kind of great is because inside the permits themselves, it actually says that if more information comes to light where this is going to be have a negative environmental impact or whatever, that these permits can be revoked for further study. So this is a very clear call to action for Joe Biden. He it's literally in the treaty that he can revoke this and do more studies, which he needs to do. Um, I just want to also say the reason that this got pushed through um, is because of our governor. Um, I'm a little I'm a little frustrated with Governor Walls. Uh, yeah, tell us about that. <laughs> so it's frustrating because Governor Walls is the reason that this pipeline got approved, um, and he actually didn't have the full support of even the Democratic Party in Minnesota. He, and I want to just bring this up. His own lieutenant governor, Peggy Flanagan, disagrees with him. So this is not like, oh, well, you know, the more corporate kind of Democrats are all trying to push this through and it's just these crazy progressives. It's not. Um, this is a very divis divisive issue, even mm -hmm. within the Democratic Party in Minnesota. And it's because of the mining. Um, so it's hard to discuss this issue without discussing the area that's also getting impacted. Um, so up in the Iron Range, which is notoriously kind of a mining area, they've lost a lot of jobs in the last few decades. Um, and that whole area is, it's honestly getting really depressed and they need jobs. It used to be a solid blue union kind of area. And because all those union jobs are leaving, that area actually is flipping red. Um, we are losing a lot of the support of our northern state uh, because they aren't they don't have jobs and as a person, of course, I understand that like they need jobs to survive. And so they're looking at this pipeline as jobs. But as we both know, this pipeline actually 
isn't providing jobs. What it is doing, it's providing some temporary jobs that, and it's- This sounds so familiar. it. (laughs) It sounds so familiar. It's just temp jobs. And what's actually crazier is the majority of these temp jobs aren't even for Minnesota residents. So it's not even helping the people in that area that do desperately need these jobs. So I don't know why these people in the area think that this is gonna help them. So we're bringing in all these temp workers from out of state during a pandemic, mind you. So we're getting, the whole thing is insane. We're we're not doing this safely. Um, What it's going to end up doing is maybe provide 30 to 45 full-time jobs by the end of it. That's, what is that? Um, For those 30 people, that might be great. um, We instead could be investing into new green infrastructure, having great union jobs for that entire area. And then Democrats would be able to actually win that area back because now they've brought jobs, they've brought infrastructure, and they're all good union paying jobs. Instead, what we're doing is we're pushing through this pipeline for temp jobs, which aren't even going to last. It's going to depress the area further because now we're going to just wipe out the area's resources. I just, I I don't understand the logic. Um, So anyway, back to Governor Walls. Back to Governor Wells. Uh, so when he, uh, when the Minnesota Pollution Control Agency did issue the final permit, um, 12 out of the 17 quit in protest when Governor Wells signed this. So that's huge. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> 38 state legislators have sent a letter to Biden in February asking for him to stop this project. So Governor Walls is actually on the wrong, he's on the wrong side, um, even for his own constituency. Um, I guess what's frustrating me most is that we have this kind of looming presence of the crazy my pillow guy who wants to run against him as governor. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Governor Walls has upset the the left, which is his own base. So I, I don't know what his end game is here. Um, the right isn't going to vote for him. They're furious about co- the way he handled COVID, which, by the way, I actually think he did a great job with. I'll give him I'll give him some props on that. Um, our state was one of the better ones as far mm-hmm. as how we handled it, but. What he's done environmentally, so Walls actually said he was going to listen to the science. Well, he lied. He didn't listen to the science. He jumped over the permits, didn't wait for these studies to get finished, and just signed it anyway. Um, So at this point, I don't think we can really count on him to actually help us. I think that we need to go over his head, which means we need to go directly to Biden. Um, And because Biden has kind of proven that he is listening at least a little bit to the activists, we really need pressure on him to just stop line three immediately uh this this reminds me of pressure on obama under similar uh circumstances on the on these very questions and just sort of the you know the the kind of ambivalent zone that you're in when you're trying to pressure uh administrations like this um and and that just it kind of blows my mind about um your democratic governor because uh it reminds me too of you know, people like John Hickenlooper uh, and uh, governors and other uh, Democrats who who favor fracking, but sort of try to play both sides of the fence. Does that make it confusing or complex in terms of of strategizing around demands? Or as you say, are you just going to bypass the whole thing and go straight to go straight to the top? Honestly, at this point, I think we have to just bypass them and go straight to the top. Um, Sunrise Movement, along with many other local groups, um, I can give you a list at the end, but I personally was involved with Sunrise. Um, We actually had a whole campaign. We had this uh, one event called Wake Up Walls, 
we went to his house at 10 p.m. and we were banging instruments and we were singing and we decided to just keep him awake because cool. if at, all night um, and it was actually it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, if you live near a governor's mansion, of course, you have to be used to protests. And Minnesota has been kind of in the national spotlight in this last year with George Floyd's murder. And now with these pipelines, with this pipeline. So we really are in the national spotlight. And I understand and can empathize with Walls to that degree that he has a lot going on. But this is important. Um, without clean water, we don't have life. Like water is life. And this needs to be the most important issue. Without a sustainable planet, I mean, as much as I want Medicare for all, if I don't have a planet to live on, it doesn't matter what my healthcare is. You know what I mean? So mm -hmm. this has to be the number one issue until this gets solved. Uh, climate change is absolutely, it's an existential disaster. It's an existential threat. Um, and I don't feel like Governor Walls is taking that seriously um, at all. And- <laughs> Well, and just in listening to the, you know, to the voices that are leading this struggle, uh, you know, I'm going to defer to to that community, and I'm going to defer to uh, you know what Indigenous people have to say. Um, and also, it just it blows me away that we're talking about the dirtiest form of oil that there is. We're talking about a minimal payoff for uh, the the shareholders, let alone the stakeholders, who are really getting nothing out of it. Uh, and it almost you know, makes me wonder whether th that part of the end game is also just to 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 score that political win, or just to to take one for uh, the uh, the fossil fuel industry, um, and just sort of to try to stretch things out as much as they possibly can to try to buy off those few constituents um, that are going to be swayed by that. And uh, and as you say. Uh, in terms of the, the the politics in the northern part of Minnesota, um, it's not really that much of a of a gain, but maybe the symbolic value of the gain is what some of these on the fence uh, politicos are thinking about. I think that's exactly right. Um, they they're looking at the short term gain of how can we get these voters to flip blue again, but there is a better solution to get those voters to flip blue, and it's to actually help them. It, it's enough with the lip service. The, in line three, when they talk about the job creation, it is lip service. These are not full-time jobs that they're bringing to the community. Um, and furthermore, just as a real quick sidebar, um, some of that money that was end up, ended up being used for this pipeline was actually taken from other funds that could have created jobs um, in the film industry. Um, and the reason I even know about this is I work in the film industry. Right, and they're, right. So I, I'm like, okay, well, I understand that film isn't like, you know, a nine to five kind of job, but it is a job and it does pay well. And Minnesota has incredible land that we can film all sorts of movies up there. I mean, really, if you can't find your location in Minnesota, it, it, I don't know what kind of movie you're making. I mean, we have every terrain you could possibly want. So it's, it's frustrating to me as well, because this money that could have been used for jobs like that was now put into this pipeline, which isn't going to even end up giving jobs to Minnesotans in the long run. So I, I'm just wanna, so frustrated. <laughs> no, I, I hear I hear you, and I'm and I so appreciate um, the, the that particular angle because each one of these things represents some part of the fight and part of the struggle, and that includes you know uh, the decision to prioritize one industry over another. Um, can you talk a little bit more about the environmental impact and uh, the things that people are concerned about? 
Absolutely. Um, so currently, the Minnesota Department of Commerce is in court. Uh, they're arguing the project's permits um, were issued illegally, along with three Native nations and many grassroots groups. Um, so we're arguing that the environmental impact of this, hold on, I want to make sure I'm getting the correct wording here. No problem. <laughs> uh, the reason that we're arguing this in court is to make sure that the treaty rights, the oil spills, and just the overall effects of climate change are all looked into before this permit was issued. Since the none of this was finalized before the permit was issued, we want these permits revoked so they can finish these studies. Um, I think we both know how these studies will end and it'll say, this is a terrible disaster, don't do it. But you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, maybe some, something crazy will happen and these, but at least finish the study. Um, and so, so here's what blows my mind. Um, so, you know, when I, I told you about when I was, you know, I was living in, um, I call it Wisconsota because I was on the, the Minnesota side of, border. The, okay. yeah, of the Mississippi River, but the lacrosse was the major metropolitan area. And when we were fighting Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad and the uh, the the transport of uh, of crude oil via rail uh, along that route, which uh, was going through all kinds of ecosystems, all kinds of sensitive places. And this was during the Scott Walker administration. And so, of course, there was no environmental impact statement. Of course, all of these things were rescinded and uh, all kind of regulatory oversight was gutted. Um, but it's a big deal whether you decide to have an environmental impact statement or not. And so what, what, is, what would not surprise people under a Walker administration would, should surprise people and should disturb people if those, yes, uh, if, if those environmental impact statements are not made you know, in more environmentally friendly administrations or- Exactly. I mean, you would think the Democrats would be on the side of at least finishing this environmental impact study. Um, what we do know about line three is the climate impact of it. It would have, it has the impact of 38 million vehicles. So it's basically larger of an impact than Minnesota's entire economy, this one pipeline. Um, it's the same impact as 50 coal plants. I, just, I cannot stress enough how dirty tar sands are. Uh, we are extracting the dirtiest, most expensive type of oil which in my opinion means that we're actually getting towards the end of the oil. If we have to now go through all of this work in order to extract that one gallon of oil, we need, remember, we need six gallons of water to extract one gallon of oil. What are we doing? We like, we're clearly we're at, at the, the end of the seeds road here. And stems. We're at we're, the seeds and stems. The, 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 the proverbial bowl is cashed and there is nothing left except this really dirty stuff. I'm just, I'm just trying to, right yeah, there, right? exactly, except the resin. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to, to translate this for some of our, uh, some of our constituents out that's there. Per, you know what, that's a perfect way to describe it. We're at the end of our proverbial bowl. It is nothing but resin. We and the Canadian government is so dead set too on, or, you know, at least the liberal and conservative yeah. parts of that government are so dead set too on, you know, promoting these tar sands, uh, you know, pushing those deals and hurting indigenous people in the process. I don't the really get it. The entire political scene on this question is almost like you're in uh, through the looking glass, right? Because all of the people that maybe, in, in, you know, liberals will just tend to think, well, 
you know, of course, Trudeau is going to be, uh, you know, pro-environment and pro-Indigenous people, and of course, never has been. Um, and then, you know, you see the same thing happening um, with the politics of the states where uh, these pipelines and, uh, and train routes and other uh, tr um, conduits of oil uh, go through. Oil has this ability to really fuck up people's politics. It really does. It really does. And that's why it's so important. I hate when people were like, oh, vote blue no matter who. And I get it in this case, like Trump was obviously wanted to be a dictator. He, we needed to get rid of him. But the, the who matters. The who really does matter. Not all Democrats are the same. Um, there is a wide spectrum. Democrats love to say, well, we're an open tent. Well, what does that mean exactly? That means you have people like John McCain and Mitt Romney allowed in the tent, as well as someone like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ilhan Omar. You cannot say that those four people belong in the same party. Has I mean, Representative Omar sounded off on this issue? She is definitely against it. It's not her number one thing that she's working on. Um, our city has a lot of other issues. And because uh, line three doesn't go through our congressional district, um, and she is the representative for um, district five. So she's more concentrated on her issues locally, but she is against this. It's clear to see what her yeah. position is. If Absolutely. If, yeah. Okay. Um, so she's one of the 38 legislators that I, I can't actually don't quote me on that. I'm assuming she's one of the 38 that signed it. Um, maybe she didn't, but I, I would assume oh. I'm I, I will. I'll fact check that fact before check we do the uh, before we convert the <laughs> recording to the um, to the podcast. Um, and, I would assume. <laughs> yeah, and talk about a little bit about the movement and the organizations and the strategies and and kind of the the street level stuff that uh, that's going on right now and what the some of those takeaways are in terms of fighting this battle. Absolutely. So there are actually quite a few groups that are uh, working against this. Um, the most notable one, I, I would probably say is going to be MN350. They've been doing a lot of boots on the ground work up there and also working with the indigenous community. So that's actually the group I would push people most towards. But Sierra Club has also done a lot of work. Sunrise Movement's doing some work. Um, but really, MN350 has taken this on. Um, actually, I can currently say there is, um, so there have been arrests made uh, up there at line three. Some mm -hmm. of the water protectors are being arrested. This is like getting no national attention. Um, and I think it's just really interesting because Keystone XL got tons of national press. And now this one's been crickets. Um, and right. there are people getting arrested up there. It is bad. The police are treating the protesters terribly. Um, and currently there's actually um, a, a water protector that is in jail and there are protesters in the courtroom right now as we speak starting I think it was this morning to try to get uh, this protester out. So this is an ongoing issue. Um, and MN350 has really been at the forefront to keep us going. Um, I'm on their action list so I'm getting their text messages and unfortunately I have not been able to go up there yet. Uh, I want to. I want to see what's going on uh, but it is like a four-hour drive for me, so uh, Minnesota's yeah. a big state. <laughs> well, and you're doing, and it sounds like- I'm doing what you know, I can in the city. There's, there's organization, organizing going on in the cities, and that sounds, uh, that sounds really important. What are some of the, um, I mean, what, who are some of the other groups involved, or uh, is, um, there, is this a coalition? It is a coalition. Um, I know Sun, well, Sunrise Movement is, has been doing a lot as well, um, and Sierra Club. Let me, I think we have a couple other groups too. Those are really the three main ones that I'm kind of thinking of immediately. 
I, I looked this up earlier because I wanted to make sure I had a few more answers for you. Um, so there's also a uh, movement to stop line three link tree. We have actually a few links that I'd be able to share with you at the end of this that we could probably add on. These DSA as well. Okay. Um, yeah, I was going to I was going to ask about um, uh, about DSA. Uh, it certainly seems like there's a heavy presence there in the in that area. We do. Um, the Twin Cities DSA has been doing a lot of anti-fascist work lately. Um, I don't know how much they've been doing in Line Three, but I do know there is a one of our work groups is working on Line Three. Uh, the Pipeline Legal Action Network is also there. Minnesota Interfaith Power and Light, Science for the People, and Health Professionals for a Healthy Climate. So Science for the People. Science for I, the I People. I have to say, they always show up uh, in these <laughs> in these uh, important environmental struggles and. They've been around for a long time. That's cool. Yeah, it is a lot of groups. Um, so yeah. everyone's kind of working together. Um, there were, hold on, I do have one more, one more tidbit I want to talk about um, with the the pending court cases. So I just want to. Sure. I, I feel like I keep going back to back and forth on a few things, but um, so with these That's pending fine. court cases, and the reason this is so time sensitive, and the reason we need Biden to act immediately, is because there are actually two court cases in the state and one federally. If, these, if nothing happens and they decide not to finish this until, let's say, the fall, well, by that point, how much construction is going to be done? And then they can just say, oh, well, it's already built. What yeah, are we going to do? Yeah. It's a moot point. And that's why we need action now. Um, but anyway, we'll go back to the groups that you can. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Or, or, or actually, wherever you want to take it from, from this point on, because uh, uh, I, just, I just think the more we know, the better. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly it. The more we know, the better. Um, so aside, yeah, from the obvious danger to the environment, because I feel like that's a pretty clear cut danger and the obvious problem of um, not honoring the treaties. Um, we're also putting all these workers at risk of COVID. Um, and I want to bring the COVID up because not only are we bringing all these workers from out of state, so we're not helping Minnesota, uh, we're, we're bringing out of state workers, but also for the arrests. Um, so all these water mm -hmm. protectors that are getting arrested are getting thrown in jail. Um, it's still a pandemic. And that is obviously being in jail during a pandemic is much more dangerous than at any other time. Um, and we're already having that issue nationally uh, with trying to get prisoners vaccinated because they're in close quarters and no one ever really wants to care about prisoners. But what we forget is a lot of times really rules only apply to people who can't afford it right so right, right obviously it's obviously it's disproportionately affecting jail uh residents obviously it's disproportionately affecting uh people of color and indigenous communities um mm -hmm. here in wyoming uh that has been the the case with um the uh, wind river reservation um and uh you know which has a a, a, a real tight relationship to the water protectors in north dakota um, and so, yeah, all of these things are sort of intersectionally linked together as these different ways in which uh, these effects fall disproportionately on people, the least powerful people, the least wealthy people. Um, and that includes the environmental impacts. Those are going to be in communities uh, where, uh, you know, people can't move away from and, and they're stuck in too. And so, of course, COVID is, is part of that because it's part of this, so, the part social of nature now. of all of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's, so that's, it's just been frustrating because it is, you're right, it's an intersectional problem. Um, and the people who are going to be most affected by it are the people who are speaking out most against it right now. Um, and they're not being listened to and they're not being heard. 
Um, so what I would ask everyone who's listening to this is Absolutely. To please, please uh, go to MN350. We have a few different petitions there to sign uh, to really try to speak to the Biden administration and appeal to them. Um, at this point, we've kind of just, at least from what I've gathered, we're kind of giving up on Governor Walz. Um, he has kind of proven that he's not going to listen and he's going to push through this, this anyway, um, even if his own lieutenant governor disagrees, even if 12 out of 17 of the people who worked on this quit because they protest, um, he is pushing it, he pushed it through. And I don't know what that means as far as moving forward with him getting reelected. I don't know if he's running again. I hope he doesn't. I really hope Peggy Flanagan kind of takes up that mantle and she becomes the new Democratic candidate. I would love that, but um, that's not really up to me. <laughs> so um, I would say the best course of action is to go over his head and go straight to the Biden administration. Um, if Biden listened about Keystone XL, he should be listening about line three. And he also, he really just needs to stop all new fracking. Um, I know he, he wouldn't commit to not fracking in the debates, which was infuriating, but at least he was committing to not starting new projects. And line three, I understand, is technically in that gray area of, oh, well, it was kind of going on during the Trump administration. So I guess I can't stop it because the fracking already began. No, Biden, the fracking did not start yet. We can still stop this. You can still, you can, you can end this. You have the power. <laughs> <laughs> and with great power. Um, but uh, uh, you talk about this, the last thing you said was this sort of, no, it's not inevitable. Um, and I think that so many times, especially with energy politics and uh, pipeline politics, um, because they're project oriented and uh, it is a tool of, of uh, against the resistance, it's a tool of hegemony to to say this is inevitable, this is going to happen anyway, um, go uh, campaign for something else or campaign against something else because we know this is going to happen. And I just remember how many times that language um, was used uh, in terms of Keystone uh, and in terms of those politics, especially out here, you know, where I live in the in the Rockies and in the West, uh, you know, the idea is, well, it's just going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. And it sounds like the, there is uh, an almost unprecedented mobilization of so many groups uh, involved in this effort. And you have a toehold with a significant number of elected Democrats who, so that if you do appeal uh, to Biden and, and, uh, uh, and go directly there, you are also going to, there's also going to be some voices in the state legislature um, and, and you know, including the Lieutenant Governor uh, in Minnesota um, who will sort of signal boost that message to Biden as well. Which is great. Um, I'm very grateful um, for that, that we have so many Democrats that are willing to say that this is the wrong plan. Um, so what I think really the issue is and why we're having trouble getting the rest of the Democrats on board and even some Republicans is because of the issue of the area and how, how depressed the Iron Range is and that they do need jobs because that is something that we have to remember, um, there are people up there that are going to be impacted as well. And so what I think works best is to always propose a solution. So yes, we need to stop line three, but we need to propose a solution in its place. So to say, we're going to stop line three, and instead, mm -hmm. we're going to actually in the same exact area do, well, maybe not the exact same, because we really don't want to 
infringe on the uh, treaty, but um, in that same kind of general area to have start some green energy and begin that process of changing our energy system over, then I think people would be more inclined to support this and support stopping line three. But when we're just saying we're gonna take this away and not give a solution, I think that's where a lot of the backlash is coming. Um, so what, so I understand why Biden might be afraid to like, you know, com fully commit to the Green New Deal. And as much as that kills me inside, I'm gonna put that aside. Um, what he needs to do though, is when he says, I'm gonna stop line three, and this is what I'm gonna do instead. So it's not just one, it needs to be both. Otherwise mm -hmm. it isn't going to be met by a lot of the people, especially in that area, with open arms it just and it, yeah it feeds into the narrative and these and these carefully doctored soundbite clips that say we're yeah. going to destroy all the coal jobs exactly you know, it's like oh well we don't you know, want to do that but you but that's not obviously that's not the whole picture nor you know is is any smart person making that the center of their demands uh over the Fox this. News. um but that is yeah but that is the you know that is the soundbite and you know it, it for for some communities and some families it does cut to the core of what they perceive as their you know as their, their livelihood, livelihood um and their existence uh, many many parallels uh to wyoming where you know our state is literally collapsing um under the uh you know the the hollowed out uh you know kind of dome of of fossil of the fossil fuel industry um because again for so long the message was there's no alternative to any of these things and you really can't ignore that and i think that's what's attractive to me about the green new deal uh it's what's attractive to me about uh, dsa's agenda uh, on this um and and really anyone um you know i would say almost anyone to the left of these sort of pro fracking democrats uh you know all of those voices are saying no we're not just going to take this away uh, we really do have alternatives and it sounds like what you're saying is that talking about those alternatives has to be part of that messaging it has to be and i, I think we both can agree democrats are not the best at messaging um because you know we want to talk about facts and figures and show you all the data and that's just not sexy no one cares no one wants to listen to me spout off numbers i'm sure people even were tuning me out when i was giving you a few numbers um that's I not what people want to hear <laughs> Well, good. I hope not. Uh, the numbers are important, but what's most important is that we're helping people. And so at the end of the Democrats message, they can't just sit there and say, well, this is bad because it's using six times more and blah, blah, blah. What they need to do is propose a solution and say, look, this isn't going to work anymore, but here's our alternative. And this is why the alternative is better for you. And this is actually going to help your community more. And I think by changing our messaging to instead talk about the negatives, and instead of doing that, to talk about the positives of what our new plan will do, I think more people will get on board. Um, even when I was speaking, you know, to voters last voting cycle, and I would talk to you know people. I'm making calls. I'm talking to people in the country. You can get a lot of the country people and a lot of rural voters on board with most of the Green New Deal, actually, if you don't say that word and just talk to them about what's in it, because these are people who live off the land. They, they really do care about the environment. And I think progressives need to stop being so snobby. Um, <laughs> and we need to really remember that the rural voters are key in a lot of what we want for the Green New Deal. And we need to get them on board. And the way to do that is to go into the community and just be honest with them, talk to them, 
And um, this is something I'm working on because truthfully, I have never lived in anywhere but the city. So I'm trying to learn how to better approach uh, rural voters and ask them what would make it what would make their lives better and what I've realized is that we actually do want a lot of the same things they want the planet to be sustainable too <laughs> they do we all do right <laughs> I, I could talk about uh, the challenges of rural organizing um, until the uh, proverbial cows come home um, and so I would love to uh, you know if you ever want to just uh, you know pick each other's brains uh, we can we can do that. Um, I'd love uh, that but you don't have to come all the way out to Wyoming you know there's you as you say you know there are plenty of communities really in in every state and that's the other part of it is that rural organizing and rural communities are, are ubiquitous uh, they exist yeah. everywhere and uh, and so it is so important, um, particularly when you're talking about environmental issues, when you're talking about linking up with indigenous uh, communities and indigenous politics. Um, it's good that you are looking outside of uh, the boundaries of the cities. Uh, although, um, you know, having uh, having been to your neck of the woods many times, uh, there's plenty to do, you know, in town too. <laughs> um, and so I get that, but, but uh, thank you for linking those together and thank you for coming on. Um, and for uh, talking about all of these, uh, all of these things, um, I'm going to talk about the um, site and organization you mentioned. Uh, we've linked that as well as a bunch of articles. Uh, it's mn350.org uh, is one of the organizations at the center of uh, the Line 3 struggle. Uh, you've mentioned many others. Um, and is there anything else that you want to add before we, before we say goodbye? I honestly, just whatever you can do. I know it sounds silly, but the signal boosting really does help. Twitter is so important. Um, so just stop line three, use the hashtags at Biden, at that POTUS. I mean, hopefully he will listen. Hopefully someone on the other end is listening. Um, I actually am feeling a little hopeful though. Um, I didn't feel this hope two months ago, but now once I saw Biden uh, get rid of Keystone XL, I, I really do feel like he he will listen if the right people are in the room. And so we just need to get the right person in the room with Biden. And I think he'll change his mind. And I think he, I don't want to say, sound too naive, but I really, I want to be hopeful. Um, so just do the right thing, Joe Biden. The, the fact that the space is open um, makes a lot of difference. And we get very frustrated and rightly so uh, with elected Democrats. Um, but the idea that you could have a dialogue, the idea that you can pressure, the idea that it's not futile uh, and that you wouldn't be, you know, because for the last four years, we kind of uh, assume that and go to the next step, uh, which is, you know, kind of the direct action um, step, which does achieve results and did achieve, I think, you know, accomplished tremendous things in the last four years. Um, but uh, the dynamics are really different now. Um, and, you know, even if you end up ultimately getting frustrated with some of these things, it, it still the entire political, I think, enterprise changes um, in, a, in a, or maybe not the entire, uh, but but I think a, a lot of it. So I'm glad that you, you know, kind of pointed out the, those those nuanced uh, differences. Um, and it was great to have you. And we are gonna we'll we'll share all of that stuff. And if you have more stuff to send us, we will definitely share and signal boost it. And we would love to have you back on to talk about this or other issues uh, in the in the weeks to come. 
Um, and uh, in the meantime, um, you know, make sure you uh, uh, take some time uh, to rest and take care of yourself um, so that we don't all burn out. Well, thank you. And thank you for having me on to talk about this. This is something I'm really passionate about and I really, really want to, uh, I would like to see this, I'd like to see this end in, the, in a good way, in a positive way. <laughs> me too. Thanks so much, uh, Brianna Rose Lee. Uh, hope that we can uh, do this again real soon. Thanks again. Thank, thank you. They just don't want to see the blood. They want that sterile elegance. Let vulgar swallow in the mud. Resentful of their opulence. And if the rabble get rebellious, prop up a right-wing populist whose words will drown us like a flood and teach us not to raise our fist. That's more accurate. <laughs> just, just keep on talking shit to each other. <laughs> okay. All right. Because so that's what we do. <laughs> okay. Cool. I mean, aliens, angels. I'm not sure that there's much of a difference there. So. Oh yeah. Yeah. We could <laughs> go. We could go. Well, all you would know. Here. You would know. You know where all the bones are buried. So. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, we found some the other day. That was pretty funny. Mm. Alien bones. No. Um. They were probably there. It's probably a cold case from the eighties. Oh wow! That's right. You get called in on those mm-hmm. in Wyoming. Um, Lovely. They're still working on that. Um, I see a doggy. Ooh, puppers. I see, I see a very good dog. <laughs> My pillow right. That's now. all that Matt sees actually. Oh. Are you a good? <laughs> are you a good dog? You are. A good Look at dog. that. Matt doesn't believe in bad dogs, so, you know. Glenn, you always start. <laughs> Go. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, yeah, I mean, it was it was an incredible experience. It was, you know, it was a privilege to be part of the campaign. I think for me, it was awesome. As an international student, so for people listening who don't know, I'm doing my MA at the University of Wyoming, and I volunteered for the Honours Campaign. I want to say from probably that spring leading up to the to the actual summer of the primary, so we'd, we'd been in touch. I think we met on through um, uh, through the Bernie kind of uh, chapter to elect Bernie on campus, and we kind of overlapped social circles there, because it's, it's a small but pretty tight-knit lefty community, I feel, in Laramie. You kind of get to know everyone pretty quickly. Um and for me, especially as an outsider, right? I'd only, I hadn't been in Wyoming for particularly long. I, I joined Bernie's campaign as a campus core leader pretty soon after I, I, I arrived in uh, 2019. Um, it was about the summer. And for me, I mean, I've taken so much from it. I think my organizing skills got so much better. I want to say, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I think I was the only full-time member of the campaign for, for a large part of it. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, through throughout that summer, it really was pretty much nine to five, um, just, you know, outreach. Um, so I was the media coordinator and uh, I also coordinated the um, the youth caucus as well, which was amazing. And it, what stuck out for me was, was that youth caucus. And it was great, obviously, to reach out to media. That's something I'm very comfortable with. I've done a lot of journalism previous years. So that was something I was, I was okay with. But actually being, you know, a, a, a figure that was, you know, a leadership figure for the youth caucus was so important for me because you could see the you could see the passion that people who were you know under under thirty even under twenty five had for the campaign. I think a, a lot of people felt seen and heard when perhaps they hadn't in previous years and and even decades in Wyoming. I think it was a really empowering campaign um, for a lot of communities who haven't had that voice to empower them for for a while. Um, and 
I think a lot of people were, yeah, felt seen and heard and felt recognized. And that was, that was my main takeaway and something that I found to be extraordinary. You can really run a, uh, a really empowering, inspiring leftist campaign in any part of the country. It doesn't have to be geographical. It doesn't have to be on the West Coast, East Coast. It really can be in places that you wouldn't necessarily think. And obviously, you know, Trump won Wyoming by the biggest margin for any state in the country, but that didn't stop us from still running a really, um, a really, I would say, successful leftist campaign. And, and that just, for me, showed that these red state, blue state preconceptions are just not very true. And I think they actually, that framing can actually um, disrupt leftists more than it can help them. It's like, actually, we should take pride in being in an area that hasn't had these voices heard for so long and actually take something from that. So for me, yeah, just seeing seeing these binaries broken down was, was so important. And I thought that was really amazing. I guess I kind of would agree with what Glenn was saying. One of the things I took was I actually didn't know what was going on in a lot of other states that were also kind of dealing with the same issues of what is it like being a socialist candidate in a red state. And like you said, there were a lot of people who we just think of would vote Republican or they would vote by party lines, whatever those lines are. But a lot of them would change their mind when they had these conversations. Um, Like Yana had mentioned a lot, this relational approach was really cool to see it in action because sometimes we get on Facebook and we have arguments and we think, why did I try? (laughs) And we kind of feel almost defeated at times. And I thought it was really nice to see how it does work and how it was also about figuring out what people's experiences were and coming at it from that approach, either shared experiences or getting to understand their experiences a little more and why they may be thinking what they are and how to kind of take apart that and maybe come at it from a different angle, you know, rather than just the argument side what can we provide so that they can see why like a socialist campaign would really benefit their lives, the lives of loved ones and the lives of humans in general, you know? And so I guess that's the second part of the question. The first part of the question, um, I met Yana through YSA No, which is an anti-immigration detention center uh, that was being set up in Wyoming. And A few other things, I think, but I was reached probably December, January, I was reached out to about helping with website. And I was like, that would be cool. I hadn't really gone to do a lot of volunteering from a more in-depth skill approach. And I thought it would be really amazing to learn. And so I volunteered for quite a while and then became part of the um, campaign staff, probably mid- mid-July, June. I think it was actually June or something or earlier. But yeah, so it was really cool. And it's awesome because I still get to help out. So far, I've helped uh, two other um, social organizations in Laramie with their websites. And so that's been kind of cool. And I wouldn't have learned these things if I didn't get a chance to try it out. I think for me, I mean, uh, my takeaway and what I've um, gained um, is 
I mean, more, you know, uh, particular things, you know, like um, I made a whole list afterwards of, of things I want to do for another campaign, um, which is make more phone calls. Um, and uh, if we're in some place like Wyoming, um, more newspaper ads, you know, so, you know, just those kinds of things that you, you don't want to forget from campaign to campaign, you know, so you don't have to learn the wheel um, over and over again or remake the wheel, right? Um, but, you know, I, I think sometimes we, we planted some seeds because I had some strange conversations with people <laughs> um, during the campaign, especially as I traveled. Um, and one of them, I, I still remember, um, I think it was Evanston, and a gentleman came up and it was an event, and, and uh, um, I was at the table, you know, at Yana's table, and um, he asked me, you know, what I was for the campaign, and I said, I'm Yana's campaign manager, and he said, so what does she promise you? And I was, I was like, what, what do you mean? Um, she's, you know, th these are the things that she's, uh, promised to do. Is that what she he's like, no, what did she promise you? And, uh, I was like, I don't, she, well, we haven't promised anything. We haven't talked about that. That's not of interest to me. I'm interested in getting someone that's interested in these things. And he really didn't believe me. I think at first, definitely. He really didn't believe me. He definitely believed that I was doing this because I had been promised something. And I mean, we probably talked for about 15 minutes. I mean, you know, he was wanting to talk, but he was certain. And, and in the end, I think he walked away with, you know, definitely the idea that I didn't think that I had been promised anything. Um, and, and I had, kind of this, I had similar conversations, not as direct as that one, but definitely conversations like that, where um, people were talking about corruption in politics, um, and a lot of people being disillusioned with um, the process, and a lot of people that didn't want to be part of the political aspect, they just wanted to be part of, like, protests, or, um, you know, um, actual action, you know, actionable things. And um, having those conversations with people was really interesting because, you know, you don't feel like, I never felt like necessarily with these kinds of conversations that um, anything was solved at the end when the conversation just naturally had to end because, you know, I wasn't going to change my opinion on, that politics is actually something that is a universal, uh, consistent. I'm an, I'm an anthropologist. So, um, you know, we have politics, but every culture has politics. Every society has got politics and, um, how we do things within that political system, whatever system that we construct, um, is valid, right? Um, it's not just, you know, busy work, which is, you know, what a lot of people were coming at me with. And so I wonder, I always like, would love to wonder uh, or to talk to those people um, later on if I, if uh, those seeds um, ever bore some fruit. And I have to, I have to believe that they will. 
or that they did or that they will in the future. I just, that's just my personality. And that's why I do anything is that I have to believe that it has some impact somewhere. I had several conversations with people that just were fed up with that, that politics existed at all. And that, that the entire system by its very nature is, uh, is corrupt. You know, that's, that's, a, that's another conversation for another day. Um, you know, you can definitely make arguments on, on both sides, but again, this is a system I'm just, I, I took the away that this is a system that we have and it's not a perfect system, but there isn't a perfect system because there are no perfect humans. So if we want to create something, then we need to create something and not just, not just whine about it, which, you know, there were a couple of people that were just like, well, I, I don't, you know, I had the other side of the conversation, which is, oh, well, I don't get involved in politics. Right. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, that's one that's, you know, really hard to talk about unless you just be in your face, you have the privilege to not talk about politics. You have the privilege to not worry about politics. Um, you know, my husband's an immigrant. I have to worry about politics all the time. Mm -hmm. um, he's a white immigrant, you know, so he doesn't have some of the issues that um, people of color um, are have when, when they're immigrating. But um, he is, he's a Jewish immigrant and he has lots, lots and lots of concerns. And it's, it's not, it's something that's in your face every day. So um, I think when people think that they're criticizing politics, um, they forget maybe that this is how we can make things better. It's not just a system for making things worse. It's uh, interesting what Dana's talking about, because I, <clears throat> I feel like one of the things that got me on the track of starting to think about running was a conversation that I had with some folks in a, um, in a social group that I was part of like three-ish years ago. And one of them was really irritated with me that I had brought up like whether our space was going to be open to and safe for trans folks. And she was like, why are you politicizing this space? And what came out of my mouth was, politics is just how people do or don't get their needs met. And whatever spaces we're in, some people's needs are getting met and some people's needs aren't. And that is like every space privileges somebody. And so I want to talk about that explicitly, but like to pretend that like this space isn't already politicized. And like the fact that I brought it up is somehow making it political. And I think that that core thought for me of like, politics really is just whether or not you're getting your needs met and the systems that lead to whether people are able to get their needs met or not. And, and so I think for me, the campaign was a lot about like kind of actualizing that thought that had been in a very, um, had been in a space that people don't think of as being political typically. And, but I was even seeing it there and seeing how like, oh, there's all of these, um, different levels of that that are happening all around us all of the time. And that, you know, to some extent, it's not fair for me to sit on my privilege and sit it out. You know, like at some point there was the why me and the why not me and the like, wait a minute, really should be somebody like me doing this 
train of thought that sort of launched me into going like, okay, I think I am actually going to not, not rest in my relative comfort zones, but actually, you know, get in there to that formal thing that we call politics. Nathan, you're up, man. So how has the campaign changed me over time? Um, I like to think that it made me, how was I thinking about this? It made me more willing to cut toxicity out of my life. Mm. Um, Just seeing how welcoming people could be. Um, I mean, especially since I came from the right wing background (laughs) and you guys welcomed me right on in. Um, I realized that I didn't really need the toxicity that has uh, followed me throughout my life. And just I've been slowly cutting away things that were toxic before because we don't need that stress in our lives. Um, So I want to thank you guys for showing me that and just making my life better in that way. A little bit more personal than... uh, overall political that's yeah, tremendous that's yeah i think that's great Nate. and it's actually one of the things that i've always appreciated about you is how you've been willing to talk about your journey from you know you were talking about like going from like the what was it that you were saying the the nra to the sra and that yeah. whole um you know blog post that you did for us was really powerful because i do think there is that thing about that that relational organizing thing that you know that folks are talking about earlier is like, I think that there really is something to that of like, you know, we have common needs and we have common interests. And, you know, and some of those is like that lack of toxicity and some of it's like policy-based and some of it's just like, who are we creating community with and who are we willing to see as being fully human and deserving of representation? Well, Nate, I'll, I'll say, um, you're, you're really right in terms of, um, the more personal aspect of um, that the campaign for me that has really sort of um, uh, burned out my um, tolerance of the intolerant. Um, I just, I don't have time for it anymore. Um, I just, as an educator, that's been a real struggle for me. is that I want to connect with everybody, you know, and um, I have these, you know, somewhat interesting Twitter battles uh, on occasion um, with people. And, um, you know, I want to, I want them to be able to um, be educated. I want them to be able to um, use, you know, their brains, um, critical thinking skills, you know, which are somewhat lacking in, in this country today. And, um, I just, uh, got to the point where I realized, and I think this is really where the campaign sort of helped me get there. And I don't feel so bad about it anymore, that there are plenty of people out there to reach that are not toxic. There are plenty of people out there that just don't no, they just don't have access. They just don't have time. I mean, you know, we're, we're killing ourselves with how much we work, for example. I mean, um, you know, we've got kids to raise and mouths to feed and, 
you know, jobs to go to and, and people don't have time to do research and, and, and feel like that they know something about this topic. So they shy away from it because a lot of people don't want to talk out of both ends of their mouth. Right. right. Um, and that's where I'm at is I want to reach those people. I want to reach the people that need the information and would be grateful in the information if they could just figure out how to do it. And a great example of this is, I don't know if you guys have been following um, the QAnon stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. But um, Lady on, I ended up uh, on CNN. So she, uh, Ashley, she's uh, on TikTok and she's a mom. She's, you know, uh, got, she graduated from high school, basically just for no other reason than she turned 18. Um she is a low information voter. She admits it. Um, she had never any interest in doing research. She always just listened to her friends. And um, one of her friends started sending her this QAnon stuff. And you can see her TikToks over the course of the summer. And then definitely at the election where she just starts getting more and more radicalized because she didn't realize until January twentieth. Uh, um, she did not actually realize that she was actually in this conspiracy cult. She did not actually know that. Um, she was getting more and more of her information from just one source. She was getting information from just one person. Uh, comes down to, and she was being uh, specifically um, groomed to not accept sources from other people, um, told not to go to Google, not to go to CNN, um, maybe Fox News in a pinch, but, you know, the, like, you know, not to pick on Fox News. Sometimes, you know, they do all right. You know, sometimes mostly they don't, but um, she was, you know, she was basically um, groomed into this cult of information and our lack of information. And then come January 20th, when she watched, you know, uh, President Biden be sworn in live, and she was told by this QAnon conspiracy that uh, this was gonna happen, they were all gonna be arrested, it was gonna be great because they were all gonna be in one place. And, and then uh, Biden, or, uh, President Trump was gonna be sworn in again for a second term, and then they changed the date on her. And that's what got her. Wait a minute. Why are you changing? You didn't say that date before. Wait a minute. Like literally that's, and you see her TikToks on January 20th and January 21st, where she's like literally on TikTok all the time trying to figure this out. And like, I don't understand. She was so ignorant about what was going on in the world because she was getting all her information from one place. And like we I've actually reached out to her and we've been talking back and forth just so that she has some random person that might send her, you know, a different bit of information. And that's, I don't think I would have done any of that mm. without this campaign. So I really wanted Yana to win. I mean, hands down. Um, I asked her flat out uh, before I volunteered, was she in it to win it? Or was she just a messaging campaign? 
Um, I think Wyoming needs people like Yana. I think uh, Yana had a, had a chance as a Democrat um, to have a message that people might actually um, have, a, uh, have a moment to listen to, whether or not it resonates with them, but to have a moment to listen to a Democrat in Wyoming. Uh, one of the things that, you know, as I've lived here um, almost a decade now, um, I've gotten really tired of people in Wyoming apologizing for being a Democrat. And while we need to talk to people and, and do it, you know, and, and, and uh, Wyoming Democrats are different and, and all of this apologist stuff. And that hasn't worked for us. It hasn't worked for us for 25 years. Yes, I was approached to help out, but at the time, I was actually really excited about the news that Yana was running because we had those conversations before. I had met her in spaces where she was actually doing something. The other thing about it was in the policies, the communities that were being talked about, it was all supportive and loving and human focused. And a lot of people I care about honestly, usually get left out when it comes to politics. They get left out when it comes to having any voice, having any stance, being able to, I would say, even feel like they belong. And it's really sad because I would say there are a ton of people in the United States who, even those who are considered U.S. citizens, who don't feel like they belong in the US. They don't feel like this is a place for them. Um, whether you have a disability, um, people of color, people who are part of the LGBT community. And heck, I even know a lot of atheists who are like, I don't feel like America is very friendly to, you know, people who think differently in their theistic views. And so I feel like having someone who is willing to not just say, well, I don't want, I want to win. So I won't even talk about this. I feel like that happens a lot, or at least it's portrayed as happening a lot is if it's going to hurt your campaign, don't talk about it. And that's how you win. And there's a lot of people who do that. And I was really happy to see that it wasn't getting done here, that people had, people had voice and a lot of people felt like it was a welcoming community, like Nathan said, which is really important. Yeah, I mean, I just want to jump in because I totally agree with um with what Sean said. Yeah, there was a real there was a real sense of community, you know, within within the within the campaign, especially as a volunteer. Like I think a couple of us, as, as we've all mentioned, kind of started off in that volunteer track and I really liked how gradually we're giving a little bit more responsibility. I know Jana offered Sean and I the um the opportunity to kind of help um, plan and really do what would have been a fundraiser. It was COVID disrupted. It was going to be a really, really enjoyable evening. And I remember working on it over Christmas uh, back in the UK. I think it still gave us hope. So for me, you touched on it, Matt, um, 2019, um, November, I think it was, um, Jeremy Corbyn, you know, a UK socialist got absolutely smashed um, in the elections. It was, it was a very dark day for the left. Take it four months later and, and Bernie's dropped out of the primary and I want to say April 2020. And I think this this campaign just managed to still harness that momentum that people still had, you know, the hope that 
that people had. For, for me, obviously, the majority of Americans wouldn't have been too uh, too fussed about what happened in the UK. But for me, it was a real it was a real issue that you know both campaigns I put a lot of um, love and care and time into just kind of imploded pretty much simultaneously, and to still have an op- option and an outlet, I think, to really put my organizing energy towards um, was huge. And yeah, it was. I think it was the way that that Yana approached voters as well for me was was fantastic i remember you know a couple of a couple of uh, meetings with community members you know yana's gun just like pulls out a big sheet of white paper and we actually talk about the issues and we talk about why you know having having power locally is important and why you know these multinational companies are bad and and how that affects us and you could see the kind of light go on i know obviously a lot of people who are at these events would have had these ideas already if you're if you're supporting yana's campaign but i could see a couple of people you know some some people in attendance would just bought a friend or a family member and you could really see you know a penny drop for them and be like okay this is this is why things are wrong this is why this inequality exists because of big farmers health profits and stuff like this and i really liked the way that yana went about explaining it to voters there was it wasn't condescending it was a very balanced it was a discussion it was a really balanced level discussion that everyone felt part of and everyone was encouraged to really give an input to um yeah and i guess you could see you know yana's training as a facilitator really taking hold there and and that being so effective but yeah just throughout the campaign even as a volunteer i loved how how yana approached it and how we were we were told to come into the fold and really offer the best thing we could to do and and for a lot of us that led to a you know a campaign position over the summer as the primary really um got hold and yeah, for me, I, I, I just learned so much as well, but it really was that sense of community. And um, yeah, the relationships we built, I mean, Sean and I, I, I work at Laramie Interfaith and um, Sean volunteers there. We volunteered quite a bit over the summer together and worked together. It's just great to see people from the campaign doing other things um, around the Laramie community. That was, that was amazing too. Definitely one of the biggest draws for the campaign for me uh, is, as Glenn was saying, how personable it is. You know, everybody tosses around all these lofty ideas of livable minimum wage, but she was actually explaining how it would be accomplished and why it needed to be accomplished and uh, how everybody could understand it in terms of how everybody could understand it. Because I was definitely one of the people that struggled with understanding stuff like that. Um, And so uh, having ways that I could further understand policies like this helped me and i'm sure it helped so many people around the state too you know because i mean i mean i'm still hot over uh the those emails that came out um from uh the other candidate so you know um i'll remember that for a while um sure it did surprise me with that that's and i think that gets back to the differences of campaigns and um, what you're willing to do to win, um, you know, kind of concepts because, um, you know, that came out of nowhere. Um, you know, some, some hostility from the other candidate and, um, and some, you know, um, misconstruing of things. It felt like on purpose, right. Um, to make, to score political points. Live blocks are a pain. Yes, that's that's what I was. Wow! I was like, uh, they are they're a little more logistically painful, but we we made it through slightly. <laughs> I never could. I never could get it to work for me. I'm I know. Like, Eventually, yeah. 
we just had to, I was like, please just send it to me and I'll say who it was and then I'll put it in or someone will put it in. But I had to keep going in and out just to make this plug-in work. I was like, why? <laughs> Five blocks are pain. Yeah, they are. And I think for me, I think uh, to answer your question as well, Matt, I think because I was doing the media stuff for the campaign, I felt a duty to watch the the debates in the Republican primaries as well. So part of my job, in, at least in the initial week or two, was to do opposition research. And although that was mainly on um, on the Democratic um, opposition, because of course it was a primary, I was also looking at the Republicans. And honestly, the debate- Oh, Jesus. Ordinary. How, uh, how did you not stab your ears? It was hard not to. I think me and a friend I was watching it with at the time had to do like bingo, like um, uh, just seeing when these nonsensical things were, were announced. I, I would have, I should have known this was going to be a question because I had a list of some really especially bad quotes, but it was just like a, like a really bad collection of like amateur villains. Like, I don't know if like, they were like in a, like, the Incredibles or something, but they're the villains and they were so bad. The, the B comic books. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I remember one guy, I think it was John Holtz was, was the man. I think he finished about the seventh or eighth. Um, he, he turned up in a, in a button up American flag shirt for, for one of the primaries, which was one of my favorite moments. And they were just, you know, the majority of the people, it was really unfortunate because Cynthia Lummis um, is horrific as she, as she is she almost seemed like she was talking sense compared to some of the just completely bizarre things these people were saying. I mean, you, know, you mentioned QAnon earlier, um, Dana, and a, a couple of these people, I, you know, I'd, be, I'd be stunned if they weren't part of that. It was just, and it was just scary. Some of the things were saying, it was funny to an extent. And I wish, again, I had a couple more uh, examples to really throw off because there were some really utterly bizarre things. Like I think Somalian pirates being blamed for some issues regarding meat in the US came up at some point. Um, obviously, lots of anti-climate stuff. But yeah, that was a hard watch. And that's not something I'd really wish on anyone. But it was it was very funny to watch four hours of, of, of these just bunch of bizarre people debating each other. That was that was my personal highlight. That was very peculiar. I loved mm -hmm. um, the conversations we would have about Yana's clothes before every uh, event. That she, she would <laughs> they send. dressed uh, me. Yes, she would send a picture. And we and she, we would get uh, several varieties, and we would all uh, give our opinions, um, especially that big one and that big debate with with everybody, like the cast. I uh, think the Star Tribune one. I think for me, it wasn't so much funny stuff as just like those moments of connecting with someone who hadn't ever felt seen in a process, like having like consistently having queer and trans folks come up to me at the end of my talks and be like, thank you so much. I'm so glad that you're, you know, that you're willing to be open about who you are and that you're talking for us and having folks with disabilities send me messages and say like, nobody has ever talked about our issues in a statewide race. Like this is the first time I'm hearing a politician for statewide race talking about our stuff. And, you know, one person in particular, I was at a, um, gosh, it was the something uh, like, American Freedom and Car Show Festival or something. I can't remember exactly where I was, somewhere over on the west side of the state and ended up talking to a few women who were working a booth at this fair and um, and one of them saying, you know, I'm, I'm disabled and so I can't make money, but I'm capable of working, but I can't do that because I will lose my disability benefits if I make money and 
this is a way that like our legal system actually stops people from living up to their values around, you know, wanting to be working. And I want to know what you're going to do with that. And that was one of the ways that I ended up having a really good conversation about Medicare for all with, you know, people who were, I mean, everybody in the booth were Republican voters. And by the end of the three of them were like, actually, I think I'm going to vote for you. And, um, you know, and so I think there's a lot of those moments that are kind of tender for me and having young people tell me that like, you know, they were really, they were really losing hope and that this campaign gave them something that made it worth sticking around for. And I think that those are the kinds of interactions that are going to stick with me, you know, probably for the rest of my life and really feel like they're much more at the heart of what needs to be happening in politics in Wyoming instead of the, you know, grandstanding and not being vulnerable with each other that I feel like is kind of the energy of this place in a lot of ways politically. You, you, mean, you mean something to me. And then I want to know where each of you go, you know, Nathan too, Donatella and Spencer, um, Haley, um, you know, who was part of our campaign early on. Um, she's actually looking at a name change. Um, she's um, done with using um, her ex's last name. Mm. And, uh, you know, these things are, you know, our, our lives are getting fuller and richer and, um, you know, I want to, I want to be a part of that, even if it's all from a distance. I feel like one of the things that happened for me and that I'm noticing has changed what I'm applying for in terms of work going forward is that I am so committed now to being part of a team. Like I've been a freelancer for a lot of years and, and it's not that I haven't been part of teams in other ways, but like that experience of being like full on a team that was super aligned, super passionate, laughed a lot, cared about each other a lot. And that we all felt like we were doing something important and we all were really good about recognizing the different skills and the different connections that everybody had. Like it just felt like the best example I've ever had of that kind of like aligned, diverse, passionate team thing. And now I'm a little addicted to it. And y'all have ruined me for mm -hmm. most jobs in the United yeah. States. And it's very narrow what I'm willing to apply for. And it's because y'all um, upped my game in terms of what I'm willing to tolerate and what I know I want and where I really thrive. And so feeling a lot of gratitude to this batch of humans. I second all that. I, I mean, I'm so grateful that I was doing this campaign and working with this team because last year I lost my father and mm -hmm. it was definitely a grieving time. And I can swear there are a lot of jobs where I was the type of person who I would never share it with people. Um, there's a lot of times I hide those sort of things or just don't talk about them. And so honestly being comfortable enough to share what had happened in life and then having so many people who were so supportive. I mean, that really helped through the later part of 2020. So of course, I'm really grateful for that. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that says it all really. Um, yeah, and thank you for sharing that, um, Sean. Yeah, for, for, for everyone being that vulnerable and for opening up and feeling that comfortable, right? I feel like 
it was it was a special place in that campaign chat and i think it's extraordinary even though we you know it's it's a high pressure environment like the political campaigns take a lot out of you they can burn you out pretty quick um as well and not once did i kind of open my laptop for a day and think oh i don't want to be doing this or to hop on the chat and be like oh there's this tension with someone i've i'm waiting to go away like i i don't think um i only worked for, you know a couple of months but there wasn't even an argument with anyone i'm not saying you should expect that at all but i'm just saying in such a high pressure position and role you'd expect there to be at least some friction regarding uh whether it's tactics or whether how a poster looks but there really was like this inherent harmony to it and even if we had some a suggestion it would always be constructive even if there was like maybe this should be changed or maybe we should change the date for this event or make this phone bank another day so it doesn't clash with this event it was there was never any i mean frustration with with anyone that i worked with it was always like oh actually that's a really good idea that's actually going to make this sub project i'm working on better um and Donatelia comes to mind. I mean, everyone does, but um, Donatelia does especially because we work together on a lot of posters, on a lot of um, events, especially with Sean. You know, for these for these live blogs, and it was just it was just amazing that we would always get to something that everyone was happy with. I mean, especially like our graphics were incredible. Um, I think that that was something that really stands out as just so cool. The graphics and the fact that we could do a live blog, and I think because we got on so well, it meant we could challenge ourselves and actually offer more to the campaign than we could have if there if we if we weren't all in 100%. That's why we did do different events. And I think we actually offed a lot, um, especially in terms of media, that not every other campaign did. You know, Yana had these regular Facebook Lives. We had these, the Sunday town halls um, were something that really jumped out. And, you know, Yana asked me to, to host one or maybe two with the Youth Caucus when she wasn't able to work. And I was a little bit nervous about it, but there was so much support and I could just reach out in the chat and be like, hey, I know it's a Sunday. I know we've all got other things to do, but would you mind just coming to this town hall for, for 45 minutes just so it's not uncomfortable and everyone would step up. And I think everyone was always willing because they wanted to, to put in that extra 10%. And it didn't feel like this capitalist, oh my goodness, my job wants so much from me. It's all I can think about. It was like, no, I want to give more because I care so much about this. And everyone had that mindset. And I think that was something that that really, for me, meant it was a special job. And, and certainly the, the position I've had that I've enjoyed the most in my short adult career. Please support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Solidarity House. And follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We're Solidarity House Cooperative. And if the rebel get rebellious prop up, a right-wing populist whose words will drown us like a flood and teach us not to raise our fist. They promise different capital, a new sharing economy. Your 1099 app will tell you whether you can eat today. But you'll have your autonomy. Get paid to make them lots of money. But trust them, they are hip, they say. Their pitch includes the term third way. They just don't want to see the blood. They want that sterile elegance. Let vulgars wallow in the mud. Resentful of their opulence. And if the rabble get rebellious, prop up a right-wing populist who's words will drown us like a flood and teach us not to raise our fist.